Welcome to Saga Briefs, where we're drinking to the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is the second of our two-episode mini-series on drinking in the Saga Age and in the Sagas of Icelanders. Andy, your voice is deeper than usual. What's going on with that? I'm trying. That's that's my starting out voice. I, I eventually <laughs> turn into this. And then by the end of the saga, you're just breaking glass. <laughs> uh, yeah, this wasn't supposed to be a two-part episode. Uh, it's just that we got started talking about milk-based booze and ale making in the last episode, and suddenly it had gotten very late. And we'd also been having a drink or two <laughs> to mark the occasion, and things got a little harder for me as the episode went on. Well, don't blame the alcohol, Andy. First rule of drinking in a hall is you're still responsible for everything you say and do while drinking. Yeah, but I was in my house, so I was, True. You know. All right, well then, be as irresponsible as you like. Exactly. So, uh, in the last episode, we talked about the production of alcoholic drinks in medieval Iceland. Uh, the four categories we discussed were beer or ale, mead, milk, and wine. You know, since we recorded that episode, uh, I've relocated to Reykjavik as part of my sabbatical work on the podcast, which means I've been able to do a bit more practical research about some of the drinks we talked about in that episode. Uh-huh. That which means you've been drinking and getting drunk in Reykjavik. For research purposes, Andy. No, no. Um, <laughs> right. I right. meant that I meant one of the non-alcoholic drinks that we talked about. Musa, uh, which is a byproduct of making both skur and syrah. Uh, Musa is the acidic, watery whey liquid that's left over after the other parts of the milk have been used up. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is the stuff that the internet said tasted like Gatorade and that our own information source, uh, Yuro the Dueler, not Gyro the Dueler, but Yuro the Dueler, <laughs> uh, <laughs> described as having a citric acid-like bite. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I found some at the local Cronin. Uh, it's supposed... By the way, uh, I apologize for any background noise. Uh, the, the apartment below the one that I'm renting is being worked on, and you may hear occasional power tools or hammering happening. Um, yeah, I, so I got this at Cronin. Uh, it's supposed to be a healthy after-workout drink. And if you okay. look at the carton, uh, it's got these it. healthy-looking cartoon figures jumping for joy on it. That's right. Well, they're full of energy, John. That's right. They're full of, they're full of milk energy. Milk energy, yeah. This is the uh, – John sent me a picture of this, uh, and I put it out on social media probably by the time this episode comes up. Uh, probably put it out a couple weeks back. But uh, it's the same same carton that you saw in the social mm-hmm. media, and I think he's going to open it now and yep. uh, give it a drink. Yeah, I figured I'd save it and try it now. So uh, here goes. Um, okay. I checked, I checked the expiration date before I actually drank this. <laughs> uh, no, it's good till next month. Uh, it's actually from Akureyri, uh, which is nice. So it's been imported to Reykjavik. Okay. Ah, here we go. All right. Now, can you use this as a mixer? Oh, wow. It smells like bread dough. It smells almost exactly like pizza dough. Okay. Does wow. it taste like pizza dough? Well, I haven't tried tasting it yet. Hang on. Um, uh, for, for, the, for the listener, um, the reaction wasn't a positive one, I would say. No, 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 no. It just takes a second. Um, it is sour. <laughs> um, and yeah, no, they're right. It's, it's, it's not citric acid, but it really does have that same bite, that same profile. Um, I, yeah, no, I, I take a, take another swig real quick. So we yeah. can just, you know, yeah, now that I know what it tastes taste like. isn't enough. Yeah. yeah so I, so I'm, <laughs> I can't tell whether you're torturing me or actually trying to get a legitimate reading out of this. <laughs> I got to see how it goes. 
No, I can see how that works. Um, I feel I'll more energetic people, already. He's, he's drinking. He's um, drinking straight from the carton, so his whole family is really going to have to deal with that now. Well, when, no, when, I, now I, they I very much doubt anybody else in my family is going to be trying that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why not? Because it's my workout drink, Andy. Um, well, do you do you want your kids to be bouncing around happy and healthy, like the kids on the carton? <laughs> no, I want them to be quiet and on the couch. Um, this is actually it's it's not it's not as bad as I feared, uh, but it's not something that I would drink a great deal of. Uh, I don't tend to drink a lot of citric acid drinks in general. I don't really like a lot of juice either, um, and it's got that same kind of t- bite, but it's more tangy, and it really okay. does. I mean, for me at least, the smell the the, the scent profile is very much like dough. Um, and then the flavor is like a milky citric acid. <laughs> gotcha. It's, it's not terrible, okay. but it, yeah, it's not something I would drink a lot of. So um, you are a connoisseur of cocktails. Uh, I know you and I both were playing around with cocktails quite a lot uh, during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what would you add this to? What could you do with it? Like make a, some kind of whey whiskey uh, cocktail or something like that? Because, yeah, because Mrs. Oh, basically whey, mean, right? Obviously, um, this probably a way to mix this with either gin or vodka um, and actually like lean into the citric thing, like some gin, some orange bitters, uh, or maybe some triple, triple sec, and then some of this. Okay. All right. Well, that'd be my guess. I don't, I don't have enough alcohol here to actually experiment with that. Uh, but if anybody wants to give that, give it a try, so they can come up with a Misa based cocktail, um, just make sure that you're spelling it correctly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Spelling it correctly. Uh, we got a note on social media that uh, there was a bit of a an important spelling error in uh, in the, the the tweet or the you know the the social media post that John had sent me. Um, you want to talk about it, John? Yep. I think it was it was pretty funny. Uh, yes, that was my error. I was do I was doing this uh, off the cuff and from memory, and so I didn't look back at my notes. Uh, and I used the accented form of the Y rather than the uh, unaccented form. And apparently in doing so, I changed it from this sort of whey byproduct drink into mouse juice, <laughs> uh, which is which is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Uh, and it shows the dangers of trying to explain yourself in other languages. <laughs> yeah, especially when when writing uh, and you don't know where the accents uh, go on the vowels uh, or when they go. Yep. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> fortunately, John drank the whey drink and not mouse juice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would I would be curious yes. to see for the next time we record, uh, maybe if we get you some ground up mouse juice and you can try that. I mean, there isn't much we won't do in the pursuit of the truth at Saga Thing, but there are a lot of things I personally won't do. <laughs> so draw the line right there. All right. Yep. All right. But uh, all this toss about the drinks themselves is old news. John, uh, this is last episode's Gosh. scoop because today we're going to shift the focus. Today we're going to talk about what mm-hmm. people did with all their booze once they made it. Yeah. Let's talk about how they drank what they drank. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be covering drinking games, exploding horns, bourgeois table settings, the Holy Grail. Things you can do inside of a keg and whether or not you can actually drink from the skulls of your enemies. Well, you can't. Well, whether or not you can drink from the skulls of your former enemies. Well, that's better. See, still not easy. It's a lot of cleaning and, you know, scraping, but you can do it. Fair enough. Uh, Oh, before we dive in, uh, let's talk for a minute about how we can or can't use the sagas for this kind of information. Uh, material culture, you mean? Yeah. Um, or or did you want to talk about uh, skull arts and crafts some more? 
Nice. That's really more of a Hephaestus thing, which I think we'll be getting to. Uh, (laughs) So the material culture problem has three major stumbling blocks. And we probably should have talked about this in the first episode, but, you know, oops. The first problem is whether these sagas reflect what people in the saga age were actually doing. We've talked about this before. It's the familiar problem of whether the sagas are preserving anything resembling historical fact. Yeah, J.R.R. Tolkien made his reputation in Anglo-Saxon studies, and Sigurdr Nordahl did the same in saga studies, in part by warning against ignoring the art of medieval writing. The fact that these writers were artists, not documentarians. They were motivated by storytelling rather than by the recitation of facts. Of course, the tricky part is that they blurred the line between those two motives, but that's the nature of their art, right? Uh, So each saga is going to have its own mix of historical memory cultural memory, and artistic license. Yeah, and every saga author mixed those ingredients differently. Into a cocktail of literary history. Oh, Drinking episode, everybody. Good job. That was really, really clever. Thank you. I like how it built up. Yeah. The other two problems are intertwined. Uh, One is the inexactitude of word usage, and the other is about priorities. So, When we read a saga or a translation of a saga, we're not always dealing with a straightforward usage of different terms, right? Um, Think of Gunnar Hamundersen's halberd in Njal Saga, right? We had a several episode conversation that went on about why that's a weird word to be using to describe a 10th century weapon. Yes, because halberds didn't exist yet. Right. But Gunnar was clearly using a weapon that had a lot in common with a halberd. So the question becomes whether we're dealing with an early sort of proto-halberd that's given that name by a later writer, or whether the writer is just making up a weapon that's more similar to the weapons of his own day, which seems more likely. Right. Right. Or, I mean, the third option, whether the word that's used, atger, is only referring to some other kind of weapon entirely, right? A long-bladed spear or a glaive or something, and that the word itself changed meaning over time. And mm. So, I mean, the same thing happens with other implements of life. Authors might be using a word differently than we might or see connections among words that have become further apart in meaning over time. Yeah. So what we're saying is that the authors don't considerately write in order to be understood a thousand years later. They write for and within their own time, (laughs) which is understandable. Of course. Yeah. Uh, And we can say the same thing about translators for that matter. I know we need to move along. So just briefly, a translator will sometimes use the words cup, horn, goblet, and so on, uh, interchangeably. That's not necessarily about bad translation. It's about priorities. Right. It's the limitation of reading in translation. A translator Mm -hmm. has one set of priorities and preferences when translating, and the editor or publisher has another set of priorities. And any outside readers brought on board during the process will also have their own. And those priorities Mm -hmm. take in a wide range of issues. Yeah, it's, it's, well, look at us, right? Uh, obviously, you have a far more granular interest in physical locations in the saga narratives than I do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I like to run off following the tracks of things like nicknames and disabilities. Mm-hmm. Our translations of the same saga would look somewhat different as a result of those interests. Uh, not to mention that our reading history and other experiences would also inform our word choices, our synonym uses, all of that. Right, right. And we're both 21st century academic Americans, which is a whole different set of cultural and historical pressures, which would also shape anything that we do, whether or not we intend for it to happen. Exactly. All of which is to say, as we I think we did say last time, that this isn't meant as the last word on the subject. If you're deeply interested in material culture of the Vikings or the history of alcohol production in Northern Europe, 
read some of the sources that we've listed along with these episodes and see what more you can find. Mm-hmm. And if you have a specific question or interest that we don't cover today, send us that question and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. Right now, we are in the middle of voting for the third quarter court and we're looking for questions to answer in between announcing the results. But uh, we're always happy to get questions no matter when you get to this episode. Uh, go ahead and send it and we'll throw it into the rune sack. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So shall we broach a keg and begin the festivities? Sco! Part one. My cup runneth over. Praise day at even. A wife when dead. A weapon when tried. A maid when married. Ice when tis crossed. And ale when tis drunk. Habamal. We're going to begin by talking about what people in the sagas drank from. Okay, that's great. Um, I'll get the huge goblets. You get the skulls of our enemies. We'll get to work. Where's my skull? That's a good place to start, actually. Thormod, do you uh, got my skull? Most modern... Oh, dear. No, no. Uh, <laughs> most modern depictions of Vikings are actually far less inaccurate than they were a century ago. But there's still a lot of confusion about how a Viking crew let their hair down for a kegger. Yeah. Uh First of all, we talked last time about how much of the alcohol they drank was, by our standard, pretty weak stuff in terms of alcoholic proof. Yeah, I was worried about that, actually. I think we may have left the impression that people just drank a lot more so that they could get sauced. Yeah, usually not. Uh, alcohol, at least the kind that could leave a Viking under the mead bench, was a high-status item. Right? Mm -hmm. In most houses, high ABV drink was a special occasion treat right? for Yule or for a wedding. Right. Day-to-day uh, -day drinking was more casual and much lower in potential for booze-fueled hijinks. Resources were mm -hmm. scarce, of course, and alcohol was a commodity like anything else. Oh, okay. Very nice. That tees up my first point nicely. The point is that what a person drank from was as much about status as what they drank. Yeah. Like so many things in the age of the sagas, honor and reputation were both publicly performed things. Status was intertwined with those, and so was masculinity for that matter. Yeah, you really can't separate any of them completely from the others in the saga no. age. Right? Uh, right. So so high-status items like alcohol and drinking vessels, these were necessary purchases for a chieftain or a wealthy farmer who had one eye on his public image. Mm -hmm. Sure. And not just for his own use or for show either. Alcohol and drinking vessels, they were always welcome as gifts. Right. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here. Let's start at the bottom. All right, uh, let's drink like peasants for a minute. Uh, I'm a charcoal <laughs> maker and a small-time farmer in the 10th century. John, what am I drinking from? Uh, straight from the teat, what am I doing? Uh, well, <laughs> oh my. Uh, it turns out that the eminent archaeologist Henry Jones has the last word on this. In 1937, faced with a puzzle concerning the likely nature of the Holy Grail, Dr. Jones chose a humble wooden cup from among several <laughs> assembled pieces of drinkware and said, and I quote, that's the cup of a carpenter. Yes, I'm familiar with uh, Dr. Jones's work. Well, as with literally everything else in any of his work, the reasoning is flawless. Uh, <laughs> wooden or clay cups were the default drinking vessel. I mean, I guess I, guess I suppose the default is to make a cup from your hands, really. But. Well, I, I think we can skip over the hand cups. Uh, that's not necessary here. Yeah. Um, so clay <laughs> and wood were used for everyday drinkware. 
Uh, not surprising, really. Right. That's true for most medieval Europeans and uh, outside of Certainly. Europe as well. Yeah. And there is some evidence of metal cups as well, but we'll get to those in a minute. Yeah. Evidence is the problem, right? Because clay mm-hmm. and wood and even the more famous drinking horns, well, they're they're all materials that don't survive too well in the ground. So once they're tossed, they kind right. of disappear. Yeah. And in fact, some of them already are ground. Sure. Yeah. The, the point is that we can't really rely on archaeology alone for a representative survey of what sake age drinkers used. No. What we can look at is the words that are used. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word care is quite common, uh, both as a standalone descriptor and as a word formation element. Care, K-E-R, means container or vessel, but it was used for everything from large kegs to small cups. Yeah. So it often gets refined by another element to indicate what's being talked about. So mm-hmm. in Viglin's saga, we have a moment when Viglin's father, Thorgrim, is serving drinks in King Harald's court, and he stumbles and spills a drink on a man named Grim. Mm-hmm. In that case, we have vrikuker, uh, used to specify that Thorgrim spills a drinking vessel, i.e. a cup or a goblet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remind me how that one turns out. Uh, doesn't uh, Grim get haughty over this accident? Yeah, he doesn't like being the Schlamatzel. Uh He calls Thorgrim a whore's son who should be out slopping the pigs instead of spilling drinks on others. Ah, uh, yes, yes. And then Thorgrim kills him. Yes, he does. Well, you can't blame him, really. Uh, you'll find care all over in the sagas, uh, from the surukare for the drinking fermented milk to the gulkare for richly decorated goblets. And as you said, care by itself can also refer to a keg of any size, so that we get a reference to a ship's keg in Erpike saga, uh, Horth saga, and actually all over the place. And maybe my favorite, uh, the the kerganga. The keg duel. The keg duel, exactly, yes. This is in Floamana saga, when two men fight a duel inside a large keg, a... It has to be a very big keg, I think, to have two men fighting in there, Uh, since according to that saga, the two of them are fighting with long sticks inside of this barrel. That is the weirdest story. It is. Floamana's got some strange, strange stuff going on in it, but uh, I agree. The keg duel, that's pretty cool. Pardon me, I'm belching Musa here. Uh, (laughs) One more example to get us back on track. In Brothers saga, there's a story about Thorhall, the Greenland chieftain. Uh, he has to borrow wall hangings and care so he can throw a big party. It's not enough to throw a party. You've got to have the right glasses to drink out of. Yeah, no red solo cups for the chieftain's parties. It doesn't work. <laughs> Absolutely not. Right. And because there isn't a lot of party throwing at in Greenland at this time, he has to sort of borrow from his neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the saga doesn't specify what those cups are made of. But yes, we can probably assume he wouldn't go out of his way to borrow 50 plastic commemorative Burger King Pirates of the Caribbean cups. <laughs> I do love a good commemorative cup, John. Eddie, I don't know if you're old enough for this, but when I was a kid, uh, Burger King gave away actual glasses, uh, like made of glass glasses for film releases. I I do know because we had the uh, Return of the Jedi cups uh, back when that came out. Yeah, the the one I remember specifically was the one with Jabba the Hutt on it. And uh, Mm -hmm. that was a favorite glass until slowly that chipped away and became just a regular glass. Uh, but my younger brother and I actually spent a whole summer taking swimming courses at the YMCA in Flushing, Queens. Uh-huh. And if we didn't complain about it, uh, we'd get to go to Burger King afterward and get commemorative cups. And that summer, it was the Empire Strikes Back glasses. Aha. Uh-huh. Very good. Um, very, very cool. Um, now, is that a segue of some sort or is this just a weird moment of nostalgia? 
Can it be both? It could. I do have a point, though. Those crap plastic tumblers that get handed out now are clearly inferior. Well, obviously. And that sense that glass is classier than other materials was just as true in medieval Scandinavia. I mean, I, I, I agree. I don't, know, I don't know what to say. Did you hear me straining to push that one up the hill? You're trying to get from, <laughs> from wood and clay to glass, I believe. Mm-hmm. Is that what's happening? Yes. Yes. Okay. Let's go ahead. Um, <laughs> uh, so the big leap in status is the use of glass drinkware and servingware. There it is, folks. <laughs> glassware. It's not really surprising, given that most glassware would have been imported into Scandinavia, which makes it a rarer and pricier commodity, which, of course, makes it more desirable as a symbol of wealth and importance, if you can have that stuff. Right. Right. As I tell my students, people are always people. Uh, The rules of supply and demand drive value in every era. And the need for the wealthy to peacock about their superior status makes a virtue of scarcity. Yeah, it's like a beautiful circle of self-important bourgeois spending. Beautiful is a bit strong, but otherwise, yes, absolutely. Uh, Now, we know from archaeological evidence that glass drinking vessels are being imported into Norway, Sweden, Denmark, on and on. Uh, Not in massive quantities, though. They were probably pretty rare and fetched a top price. Uh, Which does make sense. There's a relatively small amount of it being made, and obviously the transport of glass by ship comes with certain risks, and then you've got to store the stuff once you've got it. Right, right. And, you know, and glass blowing was a highly respected profession in the medieval period for a reason. Until the industrialization of glass making, each glass object took time and expertise to produce. Remind me, Andy, we should talk about urinals sometime. See, John, this is why you're so popular at parties. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, if you go to the right parties. That's Uh, right. Besides, you know it's relevant. Uh, Urinals were expertly crafted glass containers with no distortions or imperfections. Uh, Medieval medicine was partly based on the examination of bodily fluids, and so a perfectly crafted glass was a vital part of accurate diagnosis of a person's condition. So you managed to get the discussion of urinals in by asking us to talk about it later. I know. I'm a sneaky little imp. Uh, back to glassware. I just like the idea of, of the uh, – in medieval medicine, you've got to have this perfectly clear, lovely glass uh, vessel within which to examine the urine before you taste it, of course. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But for legitimate medical reasons. Yes, of course. This is very sweet. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, back So glassware. You wanted to talk more about glassware. Uh, Please. I'll say there were areas that were known for their glassmaking industries. Uh, Palermo, mm-hmm. Toledo, the Middle East, the Netherlands even. But the number of glassblowers had shrunk for centuries after about the 6th century. It wasn't really until the 13th or 14th century that the trend reversed itself. Yeah, um, apparently there really was, like, there's a sudden influx of new drinking glassware into the north in the early 14th century. And when that happens, there's a predictable backlash against the sudden availability of an item that the wealthy had long thought of as one of their class markers. In 1316, there's a new regulation promulgated by King Haakon V of Norway against the excessive importation of fancy drinkware. Mm -mm. Uh, The law says in part, Our men are not to buy nor to voyage to the lands of the Germans to procure fancy beerware or other items which are of little use in our country. (laughs) So Uh, there's a a, uh, 
Yeah. There, so there's a uh, a hold on going to Epcot and uh, picking up beer steins from <laughs> Germany. <laughs> right. Getting your getting your one liter boot mugs. Right. Um, by the way, that that find uh, that reference is from Rodriguez's dissertation, which I mentioned last time. People mm-hmm. should really read that thing. Yeah, it's quite interesting. And that that was up in the show notes for our first episode of the drinking yep. uh, saga briefs. Um, so we can infer from that either that the market is being saturated and ruining the profit margins of importers or the aristocracy was annoyed about the lack of exclusivity when any Tom, Dick or Haroldson could drink from glasses like fancy people. <laughs> the democratization of glassware, I guess, sort mm-hmm. of. Uh, it, it was probably still beyond the reach of the actual poor. But you see these attempts to slow the social climbing of the middle class all over Europe around this time. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, A Norwegian drinking from a glass cup and a French merchant defying the sumptuary laws are both engaged in a similar process, Mm -hmm. claiming the right of social height by virtue of wealth, and in doing so, threatening the pretensions of aristocrats by trying to join in. Uh This is starting to sound sort of uh, anti-capitalist and pro-capitalist at the same time. Welcome to medieval Europe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, but we have strayed from the world of sagas here. Um, I was about to go into a whole thing about clothes and what clothes people can wear, but we shouldn't yeah, go there. Yeah, no. Uh, people, <laughs> it's a different people, episode. Yeah, people can look all, all that stuff up, but it's quite quite fascinating how the uh, the wealthy of the European Middle Ages uh, limit the access of those beneath them to goods mm-hmm. Uh, that to distinguish them. Uh, but glasses. Andy, Andy you're, tr- Gla- you're trying to bring us there. You're trying to talk about it. <laughs> but glasses, John, I was trying to think about glasses. Yes, the th- glasses. The interesting thing about glasses, John, is that glasses uh-huh. are being used by the elite, even in the high medieval period. And yes. the sagas are about the cultural elite. So mm. why don't we get more references to glassware in the sagas? Right, that's a good point. Uh, it's a funny thing, but the family sagas don't really spend all that much time on what people are drinking out of. No, it's just a vessel. Uh, it does come up occasionally, right, if it's, if it's a plot point it comes up, like A.L. Scott LeGrimson biting through the rim of a drinking horn after yeah. being given milk by his daughter. Or uh, let's stick with ale for a second. The time he carves runes into a horn filled with the poisoned ale and the horn shatters in his hand. Sure. And we'll talk about horns in a little while. But the glassware thing is an interesting problem when it comes to the sagas. We know that Iceland has medieval glass. Uh, Beads, for example. Glass is Mm -hmm. one of the commoner materials for beads. And glass gaming pieces have been found in the hundreds all all over the north. Yeah. But there's virtually no evidence of glass drinking vessels in Iceland. Which would naturally lead you to think that we'd find the evidence for glassware in the scenes when Icelanders are visiting the Norwegian court. And we do find occasional references to drinking goblets as high-status items. Uh, Snorri Sturluson, for example, has... The infamous Snorri Sturluson? Yes, the infamous Snorri Sturluson uh, includes a few stories that feature goblets in his writing, usually in contexts that make it clear that they are made to be visually impressive. There are references in the Heimskringla and the Prosetta to goblets, but what kind? Right, but not necessarily to glass goblets, though. Right, right. This is no. the language problem. This is my effort to transition again. Uh, this is a oh. transition to... Other kinds Sorry. of goblets. All right. Carry on. Yeah. So the, the word in Old Norse is uh, kalker, which describes the form, but not the substance of the vessel again. So mm-hmm. goblets could be made from glass, but could also be silver or horn or or whatever. Uh, give me an example. Pick one story. Okay. Well, um, if it's if it's one, then I think we got to go with Thor, 
trying to smash a goblet in the Poetic Edda. Uh, this one is in the uh, the Humusquita. Uh You know, Rodriguez talks about that story, too. He's got everything. Well, of course he does, because this is a great story. Um, so this mm-hmm. is part of the same poem that includes Thor and the giant uh, Humer uh, going fishing and Thor nearly catching Jormungandr, the uh, world serpent. So later mm-hmm. on, Thor's challenged to break Humer's prized goblet, the one that Humer himself drinks from at feasts. Now, Thor tries slamming the goblet against a stone pillar and then throwing it with all his might. Uh, but the goblet just bounces off, and Humer and all the other giants enjoy a good laugh at Thor's expense. Right, so this is a magical goblet. Well, it's got to be. Uh, part of the embarrassment yeah. here is that this looks like a task that should be simple. It's a lot mm-hmm. like the tasks of Utgard Loki in that way. But while the giants are all laughing, Humer's wife leans over to Thor and says, Hey, you know what's harder than any goblet ever made? My husband's <laughs> head. <laughs> Now, that's not the kind of advice that Thor's ever going to turn down. He takes up the hint sure. quickly. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, if she's right, he wins the bet. If she's wrong, he gets to smash a giant's head with an unbreakable goblet. Right? Win-win. It's a win-win, and that essentially is what Thor is thinking. He stands up, brings the goblet crashing down on Hymir's head, and grins as everyone falls silent, and the shattered bits of the goblet rain down around Hymir's head. Uh, quick sidebar, the point of this entire poem is that Thor and Tur are trying to win Hymir's cauldron to brew beer for the gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. So glasses and goblets do turn up occasionally, but they're usually in the context of fantasy, myth, or even foreign travel. Yeah, I would say that goblets are better represented in modern ideas about Viking culture than in the sagas. Mm-hmm. Right? It's sort of a generic medieval thing to have a lord or king holding his goblet at a meal Toasting his men or brooding dangerously while toying with his drink. Yeah, it overlaps with fantasy, really. Uh, A show like Game of Thrones is constantly showing people drinking from fancy goblety items. Or Starbucks cups. Or, yes, yes. Or one or the other. They're they're both available. Right. So uh, wood and clay were for the farmer's beer. Uh, Goblets and glasses for the Lord's wine. And the occasional half-calf mocha latte for the people of King's Landing. (laughs) <laughs> but none of those are anywhere near the drinking horn when it comes to modern ideas about Vikings. Ah, the drinking horn. Everyone knew we were going to be talking about these. Of course. Uh, horns are a kind of strange choice for a drinking vessel in some ways, but they were actually used, although maybe not in the ways that we tend to think. Yeah, I worry sometimes that academics are, this is a general statement, I guess, but academics are a lot quicker to play spoiler than enthusiast. Uh, When we talk to each other, it's often about how unbelievably cool and exciting our subject is. But our public-facing stuff is always this kind of scolding perspective about what's wrong with this or that film or public perception or why, say, Game of Thrones is silly. It's a bit of a shame. Uh, But horns are great because horns are real and actually cool, right? They're real. Yeah. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. So horns are pretty widely used, but most of them were likely not to have been adorned beyond, you know, some carvings. And so they're not likely to survive in the archaeological record. Uh, we said earlier that horn tends to sure. degrade in the earth. Right? It's, it's keratin. Uh, but the good news for drinking horn aficionados is that the stuff used to enhance the fancier kind of drinking horns, uh, a metal lip here, a, a conical bit at the bottom there, that stuff is more durable. Yeah. Images of drinking horns are pretty frequent in art as well. Uh, They show up in carvings, pendants, manuscript illuminations, in the context that connects them to wealth, to 
kings, even the gods and the afterlife. Uh, one of the recurring images that we see is of a woman, usually interpreted as a Valkyrie, offering a horn to a newly invited soul into Valhalla. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Right? The, the cornucopia, the horn of plenty, uh, has been a feature of myth since at least the Greeks. Right? Um, one of the many origin stories for the cornucopia is that Zeus gained this ever-abundant horn by accident as a baby when he broke off the horn of Amalthea. Yeah, good old Amalthea. The, uh, yeah, this is the goat who was breastfeeding Zeus as a nursemaid, because classical mythology is amazing. It really, really is. Always some interesting stuff uh, in there. But once, once you link the tradition of the cornucopia to the cultural use of the drinking horn, the Valkyrie thing make per- makes perfect sense, right? It's the, the reward of an eternity of plentiful food and drink summed up in a horn of plenty. Horn of plentiful mead, yes. Uh, very, very neat. Yes. Uh, but we don't have to rely on art and myth completely because of the survivals of actual horns and horn adornments. There's plenty to prove that the drinking horn of Icelandic myth and saga is based in firm reality. So the question becomes not whether horns were really used, but when and why they were used. Why not use them? That's well, right. for, for starters, John, they're, they're not the most practical container to drink from. I mean, okay, there's the matter of removing them from the head of a very large animal who grew them. But once that's done, you're all set. And then there's the issue of what to do with the horn when you're using it. You know, have you ever tried to put one down with liquid inside of it? (laughs) Not easy. Yeah, no, no. um, I mean, you can. Everything inside will spill, obviously. But other than that, there's nothing actually stopping you from putting it down. Yeah, but spilling your drink is an embarrassment. Uh, the horn's pretty much in your hands until you finish whatever's inside. That's maybe the idea. Well, I mean, the obvious solution there is just to finish your drink. Uh, mm-hmm. But if that's not an option, we do know that horns with feet attached existed, and others were placed in stands of wood or metal or even of more horn. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're not especially convenient, I grant that. But they are watertight. Uh, essentially ready to use once you knock them off the cow or ram or whatever, and generally of the right size for use as a personal drinking vessel. Also, they look cool. And they look cool. Yeah, they really did. The higher-end horns were carved and decorated. Looking cool was a serious part of the whole thing, and a well-decorated horn was a real asset to a rich man's table. Yeah, but even a relatively plain horn lent a sense of occasion to an evening's drinking. Horns were sort of like the good wine glasses in your grandmother's hutch, right? They add tone to a party. And if you're bringing out the good glasses, it's probably a holiday. On the other hand, because of their shape, they, as you suggested, they do encourage an increase in consumption and therefore a lowering of inhibitions. Are we still talking about your grandmother's drinking habits here, John? (laughs) No, although I actually, I I have a few good stories I can tell you there. Uh, My maternal grandmother was 17 when Prohibition began in America and according to the photographs, she wasn't a fan. Uh, but <laughs> that's a that's a diff- that's another story. Uh, what I was getting at is that not everyone agrees that horns were only for Sundays and fancy days. There's a growing school of thought that says that they may have been fairly commonly used. I mean, not those ridiculous three foot aurochs horns, right? Uh, regular ones, uh, one serving horns. Yeah, I keep thinking of regular mugs compared to those novelty yard of ale glasses that you used to see at outdoor festivals. Yeah, like that, but fancy ones. Fancy ones, of course, yes. Uh, but you can have both and, and have them serve different purposes. Oh, sure. Definitely. I mean, I know Thanksgiving at my house was never complete without our novelty yard of ale glasses. 
Well, you know, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> um, I think we need to back up and do a bit of hasty caveating here, if you will. All right. Uh, your mileage may vary. Offer not valid in Hawaii or Alaska. Uh, this package is sold by weight, not by volume. I, no, I mean uh, about horn usage. Right. Um, we we should avoid the trap of of treating a thousand years as a single unchanging constant. Horns weren't always widely used. The popularity of drinking horns dropped over the course of the 12th century and then rebounded in the late medieval period. It's a style thing, too. Right. Uh, And most of the surviving examples that we have of medieval horns, they come from that later period uh, because those are the ones that don't tend to have been buried, right? They're they're kept in collections rather than being Mm -hmm. rediscovered in dig sites. Right. Yes. So some of those later examples are really works of art and you can find them in museums. Uh, They are worked in gold, tin, silver, bronze and ink with gems and so on used for adornment. And they could be small, holding a single portion of a drink or much bigger, much, much bigger. A few of them (laughs) are absolutely huge, John. There are horns in Denmark that measure about three feet long, for example, talking about uh, a huge yard of ale glasses. Uh, that's a big horn. Uh, for yeah. for those of you who like to visit historical museums, uh, three feet is the size of a triceratops horn. Um, <laughs> where these came from, uh, these are the horns of aurochs, which was a huge wild cow that went extinct around 1627 or so. Uh, they were big sons of guns. Uh, an adult male aurochs could stand about six feet tall at the shoulder and weighed any, anywhere up to a ton or even more. That's a whole lot of cow, and it grew a pretty big horn. Yeah. You ever seen one of those? Not, not the auroch, but the, the drinking horn? Yeah, I'm not that old. Uh, no, I, I, I've seen a number of pictures That's of them now. That's not what I was saying. Uh, and they are not something I'd want to try chugging out of. Which, of course, brings us back to the question of how horns were used. Well, remember the mantra, people are always people. You mm-hmm. have a drinking vessel that's hard to put down until it's empty. That can come in large, extra large, and oh my god sizes, and you get a bunch of people throwing a party with alcohol present. Yeah, it's a, a drinking contest thing. Of course it is. Why not? Sure, it doesn't have to be right. Horns were probably used ceremonially or socially, or as a special uh, tool for an honored guest. But of course, people being people, there are going to be drinking contests, sure. uh, and that can go a couple of ways. One is that the horn can't be put down until it's been drained. Yeah. To return to the stories from Ale Saga, when Ale is at Atloy Bard's house, he drinks his own horns of ale, but also starts drinking his friend Olvir's horns once Olvir is clearly too drunk and full to finish any more. And at Armagh Beard's house, he ends up drinking not only his own horns of ale, but those of several of his friends. Yeah, there's clearly an assumption that to fail to finish a horn was embarrassing. Right? It was an admission of physical weakness or an unmanly lack of self-mastery. Mm-hmm. Or just plain old frat boy style competitive social drinking or. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for any college students out there who think that Edward Forty Hands is a new idea, forget it. The Vikings were <laughs> way ahead of you and they were doing it with horns. Uh, and we'd obviously be remiss if we didn't include the story of Thor and that drinking contest in Utgard. <laughs> I like that you, you use the uh, Edward Forty Hands reference as though uh, frat guys are still referencing Edward Scissorhands with their drinking parties. Though they are. That's still a thing. Oh, I'm sure it's still a thing. Do they call it that, though? Yes. My students have informed me that this is still very much a thing. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Which I would is, think that they would innovate and come up with new names. 
I'm guessing at this point, though, many of them don't actually know about the movie. Right? They just think it's right. called Edward Forty Hands. They've never given a moment's thought to where that name came from. Gotcha. Okay. But maybe um, I'm but doing you, a disservice you, to today's youth. I don't know. I, well, if anyone does a disservice to today's youth, it would be you, John. <laughs> uh, I, can, I can say that for a fact. Um, but you were just talking about the uh, drinking contests at yeah, uh, Utgard yeah. Loki. And I feel, I feel like we've talked about that before, haven't we? I honestly don't remember. Uh, if you've heard us talk about this before, please feel free to skip ahead. Or compare the different versions of the story and pick your favorite. Oh, geez, no pressure. No, I'm, I'm not going to go through the entire story. Brevity, sir. I embrace brevity. Is that what you embrace? Shh. The background is that Thor and Loki have traveled to Utgard with two servants Thor has picked up along the way. They meet Utgard Loki, the leader of the giants who live there, who tells them that they cannot stay in his hall unless they distinguish themselves in some way. First, Loki enters an eating contest, but is outconsumed by a fellow named Loki. Uh, Thialfi, Thor's quick-footed servant, loses a race to a little man named Hugi. Uh, and then Thor steps up. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, you might reasonably assume that Thor would immediately offer to fight anyone present. Which is on brand for him, no question. Yeah, well, usually it would be. But on this journey, Thor's developed a tremendous hunger and, more significantly, thirst. So he proposes a drinking contest. Woodguard mm-hmm. Loki agrees, but instead of having Thor outdrink an opponent... His challenge is to empty a large horn of ale. Utgard Loki says, Recount a man a good drinker, if he can polish off this horn in one go. But some men do need two to finish it. There's no man here so weak-bellied he can't drink down the horn in three tries. Now, some paraphrasing is going on there, but that's essentially correct. So the point is that drinking a large horn might be treated as a challenge, a spectacle, or even a proof of manliness. Of course. And it's also, of course, a credit to the host who can provide both the large drinking horn and enough good ale to fill it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you, you didn't finish the story. Go ahead. Well, I figure we're going to end up spending a brief on this entire myth at some point, so I don't want to ruin the sure, whole thing. Sure, we will. Uh, Why would you say Thor, something like that? Uh, because, you know, if we don't promise at least three new briefs in every brief, how are we ever going to come up with inspiration? Uh <laughs> So Thor, in this challenge, takes three massive swigs from the horn, each one longer and stronger than the last. Each time, the liquid in the horn barely moves. After all three drinks, the level has dropped just a finger's width from the lip of the horn. Uh, So Thor fails the challenge, but as with everything in Utgard, there's a trick involved. Yeah. For more information, you can see your preferred edition of the Norse Myths, or wait for that brief on Utgard Loki's story, uh, which will be coming along Anytime now. Sure. Anytime now. Yeah. Uh, by the way, it's not just pagan culture that got tied up with these things. Uh, Vivian Eddings, for example, talks about something that I hadn't known before. Uh, apparently, the Christian story of the three kings got associated with drinking horns. The kings are supposed to travel a long way to bring gifts to the newborn Jesus. Uh, and in Scandinavian tradition, one of the gifts was a drinking horn. Really? So... Gold, frankincense, and horn? Well, you know, myrrh's overrated as a birthday present anyways. <laughs> Bordering on a Monty Python reference there. Uh, that's interesting because there's a pretty widespread belief among scholars that the church tried to discourage the use of drinking horns at various points. So I'm a recently converted wealthy landowner in, say, Norway. So I might okay. very well have a horn with both runes and Christian stories depicted on it. 
Yeah, I mean, an object of value that integrates the two face and the changing times. Quite common, actually. I mean, it's a thing of beauty, right? And presumably, I'm bringing it out to show anyone who drinks at my house, which then sure. spreads the idea of peaceful integration of culture and faith. Well, yeah, but history is complicated. So the drinking <laughs> horn had a number of roles. It was a classy way to drink, but it could also be a personalized identity marker or a way mm-hmm. to play drinking games or undertake contests of masculinity. It's got connections to mythology and magic as well. And again, say this, it looked cool, which brought yep. social capital to the host who offered them to his guests. Great. I think we're almost done with this part, but before we move on, we really should address the skulls thing. The uh, drinking from the skulls of enemies legend, that thing? Yeah. Uh, we talked about this once before, but it was a long, long time ago uh, in the episode about Krakomal, the death song of Ragnar Lothbrok. Oh, that's uh, the one. a verse yeah, okay. from that poem in which Ragnar looks forward to his ascension to Valhalla. We struck with our swords. My soul is glad, for I know that Baldur's father's benches for a banquet are made ready. We'll toss back toasts of ale from bent trees of the skulls. No warrior bewails his death in the wondrous house of Fjolnir. Not one word of weakness will I speak in Vithra's hall. So the line, we'll toss back toasts of ale from bent trees of the skulls, that's the one that causes the trouble. Indeed. It's a pretty straightforward kenning, actually, referring to the horns, the bent trees of an animal skull. But a bad game of translation telephone by Old Worm in the early 17th century led to an eventual English rendering of the phrase as, We shall drink beer out of the skulls of our enemies. Well, that's a significant difference. It is. Uh, And even though most scholars at the time noticed the error and have been trying to correct it ever since... The problem is that cool factor we mentioned earlier. The idea of drinking from the skull of your enemy is just cool, in an 80s heavy metal album cover kind of way. A bunch of academic eggheads like us, who whine about the accuracy of translation, just can't compete with the image of a grimdark Viking drinking mead from a skull. You know, if there isn't an Iron Maiden or Man of War album cover with a skull goblet somewhere, I would be very surprised and uh, and disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, what makes this even more complicated is that you can make a sort of shallow bowl from the cranium of the skull. Uh, People like to joke about the problem of how many holes there are in a skull and why they'd be terrible for drinkware. But if you lined a cranium just to seal up the foramina, the fissures between the cranial bones, you could make a sipping bowl if you really wanted to. Yeah, but to be clear, Vikings didn't do that. No, no, I'm just talking about potential necrotic arts and crafts. But there's another (laughs) problem which is that there's a repeated reference Uh, to goblets made from skulls of humans in mythology. Yes. Uh, First of all, I just want to say I love the phrase necrotic arts and crafts, and that should be uh, (laughs) that should have been a class in community. You know, they had all the the silly electives. Necrotic arts and crafts. Yeah. Yeah. Are you guys taking necrotic (laughs) arts and crafts? Oh, Uh, no, that's funny. Uh, But I think uh, a good example of what you're talking about is is Wayland. Of course, yeah. Uh, listeners, you might be familiar with this figure under the Greek name of Hephaestus, which I had mentioned earlier, uh, or maybe the Roman name Vulcan, or the Germanic uh, Voland, or, or Wayland. He's a legendary blacksmith who's imprisoned and hobbled by a jealous king. In revenge, he kills the king's two sons, fashions goblets from their skulls, and sends them to the king and queen to drink from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was even precedent in Norse myth 
in world myth for the idea of making goblets from the skulls of your enemies. Or their kids, yeah. So we may be judged all a little bit harshly. Mm-hmm. He wasn't so outlandishly wrong. No, he, he was pretty wrong. Yeah, but I want us to be fair to Old Worm, whose name, by the way, we apparently butchered in the Crocomol episode. Oh, yeah, we did. Uh, I think we pronounced it something like Ule Verm. I mean, I think that was actually us committing the same error of cool because, John, Ule Verm <laughs> has a great D&D villain sound to it and is definitely mm-hmm. more interesting than Old Worm. So what we've established today essentially is a new concomitant to the rule of cool. Yeah, uh, but I, I also wanted to say that Ole was a very intelligent natural scientist with a healthy skepticism for popular wisdom. Well, we talked last time about how he disproved unicorns by demonstrating that the horns being traded around Europe were actually narwhal tusks. <clears throat> oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, he also proved that birds of paradise did, in fact, have feet, which was huh. uh, which disproved a widely held belief that they flew all the time because they didn't have any way of standing up. Um, sure. And he demonstrated that lemmings weren't spontaneously generated by nature, which was still being debated at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Early modern science is amazing. Uh, so what you're saying is it one really bad is. translation shouldn't define him. Oh, God, no. I mean, can, John, can you imagine if we were judged solely by our worst translations in grad school? I mean, I kind of am every <laughs> night when I try to sleep. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense. Uh, all right. Anything else? Uh, well, we've brewed the beer and we've got our drinking horns. I think we're ready to throw a big old party. Wow. And we're only halfway through, folks. Part two. Party time. Alcohol is so much like a flying bird that steals memories as you drink, and makes off with your mind. I, too, have been caught up in that bird's grasp when I drank in the hall of Gunloth. I was drunk, far too drunk, in the house of Fjallar. The best gathering of all is the one where you go home still bearing your wits in your mind. Havamal. So the one thing we haven't covered yet is why people drank. Well, you drink because it's there, John. No, but it isn't. This isn't like a mountain. You have to make the booze. Well, because they're people then, I think is a fair explanation. Yeah, that that's a bit closer to it, I think. I mean, we can push that answer pretty far, can't we? I mean, there have been serious analyses done by real anthropologists about this. They argue that one of mm-hmm. the chief motive forces behind the development of agriculture and permanent settlements was to make alcohol production easier. Look at you. That was that was quite a sentence. Uh, well, that my makes wife sense. Was a, um, she was an anthropology I, major, you know? Yep, there you go. Uh, but I was thinking less existentially. Uh, let me okay. rephrase the question. and Maybe we can actually focus down a little bit. Uh, under what circumstances and for what purposes did people in the saga age drink? Uh, the answer would still be... Because people, but let's move beyond that into saga-specific yeah. <laughs> answers. I think that's what we're really aiming for. Right. Uh, I mean, well, honestly, the reasons are still somewhat universal. Uh, sure. Broadly speaking, they drank to celebrate, to commemorate, to enjoy communal recreation. All laudable goals. I like it. Right. 
And on the negative side, they drank to anesthetize, uh, to mourn, uh, or sometimes they drank because of addictions or trauma. Interesting. For, for example, on those the last two there. Um, well, for example, alcohol was recognized as a useful social lubricant, but its value as an emotional anesthetic is also attested in the sagas. Right? Ale Scott Grimson in Ale Saga drinks heavily after his brother's death and when stressed or grieving. Um uh, and then there's a, an improving reference in Hungerwake to the use of strong drink as a way of easing the pain of grief. It's almost treated like a prescription there, though. And and it's not as if yeah, the, yeah. that tendency ever really goes away. Um, of course, a number of cultures, including American and British, still treat alcohol as an appropriate part of the grieving process. Right. And it's, it's not just medically encouraged for grief. The administering of alcoholic beverages to a postpartum mother – it's also very widespread in medieval Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's suggestive of the use of booze as nourishing to the body, as well as being a physical and emotional anesthetic. Yeah. Well, we can look at how several of those impulses can meet in a saga as well. Um, I could tell you a story here uh, about that exact thing. Um, oh. John, when uh, my first daughter was born, uh, the lovely Gwen, mm-hmm. um, the first thing that my, my wife wanted after the birth was a beer. Um, she hadn't had any anything sure. to drink uh, the whole pregnancy. Yep. And but she was feeling guilty. I was supposed to smuggle in some beers to the hospital uh, so that she could <laughs> she could have one. Uh, but she feeling guilty asked the doctor about this, and uh, the doctor said, "Oh no." Said, "No, I am from a long uh, line of Irish uh, Catholics, and we heartily approve <laughs> <laughs> of this idea. It's in fact important that you get a drink now that you've had this baby." There you go. So there you go. There you go. That's funny. When my first son was born, uh, my wife had a friend who was on call exclusively to pick up and bring over an order of sushi for her to eat as soon as possible after giving birth. <laughs> she was being driven nuts by not having had like, any like any fish for nine months. Yeah. Well, there's another saga brief we'll have to promise. The eating of fish and fish products. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, sure. Uh, yeah. But we can uh, yeah. we can look at how several of these kind of impulses meet in the sagas as well. Um, let's take that example of Aelscott the Grimson at the party being thrown by King Adelstan after the Battle of Brunenburg. Remember, Aeol enters mm-hmm. the hall after burying his brother, who was killed in the final moments of that battle. The drinking, the commemorations of the dead, and the celebrating have already begun when he gets there. But Ale signals his anger, his grief, and irritation by refusing all offers of drink. Right. He's also still in his blood and mud-stained clothes when everybody else is in their best finery for the victory party. Mm -hmm. He's in the hall, but he won't share his grief or his victory with the others. He remains apart from them in large part because he won't share their ale. Yes. The situation is only saved by King Adelstan, who makes a very public show of recognizing Ale's grief and compensating him for both his brother and his pivotal role in the battle. Only then, once he feels that the needs of his grief and honor have been satisfied, only then does he join the party by taking and drinking ale. Yeah. That's a really good example. There's a lot to unpack in the way alcohol was used for the purposes of social cohesion. Um, Michael Enright, I have a quote here. Uh, Michael Enright says that communal drinking must be viewed as having some of the aspects of a cultic act, Mm -hmm. creating a non-natural bond of loyalty, which I have to say feels like the sort of thing that ethnologists write when they weren't invited to the cool parties in grad school. There were cool parties in grad school, John? Oh. 
no, no, not at all. Because you always uh, so communal drinking. <laughs> sorry, nope, nope, uh, nope, not a one. Uh, so communal drinking serves to lower barriers and create an artificial camaraderie, but potentially a powerful and lasting one that can grow into the real thing. Mm-hmm. Cool. Let's start with that as a basic thesis. Okay. So the occasions that we're focusing on, uh, people did drink privately or casually. Uh, so we're not trying to ignore that, but we're looking at something slightly different. Right. No. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of drinking would have happened in the home along with a meal or as a refreshment. But most modern depictions of Viking life and honestly, most contemporary poetry focuses more on the social consumption of alcohol. Uh, booze is a social lubricant and as a way of marking out a gathering as a celebration. Yeah, and from the standpoint of the sagas, it's social drinking that was important. Right. The sagas, by their nature, are more interested in public actions than in private ones. Right. And drinking is presented as an inherently social act. So the commonest form of social drinking uh, is at a feast or for an occasion with a host providing drink to guests. The practice of a lord feasting his followers and providing them with plenty of drink uh, that has actual names, right? It's called a sumbul in Anglo-Saxon. Uh, well, in Norse, the word drikur and its verb form dreka served almost as a synecdoche for feasting. Yeah. And the occasions that could involve hosting a drinking party are quite varied. Uh, mm-hmm. Jenny Jockins talks about this word and practice, uh, barsa, uh, which is a Danish thing. In a modern context, it refers to childbirth, but it seems to derive from a late medieval word, barnsol, uh, which means child ale. So the practice of drinking to celebrate a birth, in fact, in some ways to consecrate a birth, is inextricable from the birth itself. You know, I mean, I know that's an important part of my family's culture. Uh, Bringing a child out to a gathering for the first time inevitably involves wetting the baby's head or what my not entirely PC family calls an Irish baptism. Um, just to get a sense of what you're talking about there, you're talking about putting alcohol of some sort on the child's head. Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. This is, uh, they're just, the baby is just present while everyone toasts the baby, celebrates the baby's name. Uh, usually there's a toast to whoever the baby is named after, if the baby is named after someone in the family, and so on. Uh, but it's it's very much... You know, it's the uh, the side of my family that gave me a name like John Peter Sexton, which is a very Irish family. Yeah. Well, that's that's very, very interesting. I, I kind of like the idea of actually wetting the baby's head with some of the whiskey or whatever you're drinking. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I understand yeah, and accept. I understand and accept what you uh, what your family does. Um, Thanks. Cool. Very cool. Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, and this happened at both ends of life. Uh, when a person of significance died. The heir was responsible for hosting a drinking session called an heir's ale or an inheritance beer. Lockstall Saga actually describes an heir's ale drunk for Al the Deep-Minded. Yeah, and that's a strange one. Um, if I remember, uh, and we'll get to it as we uh, were about to start Lockstall Saga, so we were not that's too right. far away. Um, Al is actually responsible for gathering everyone together. Uh, the mm-hmm. occasion is the marriage of her grandson, Olaf Peacock, to Thorger, the daughter of Ale Scully Grimson. She greets everyone at the wedding feast, presides over the first night of the party, and then walks into her bedroom and dies quietly. Spoiler alert. Right, which you'd think would put a damper on the wedding reception, but it doesn't. It just turns it into a joint event, with the wedding ale being used for funeral ale as well. Yeah, and the implication of that scene seems to be that Alv knew her death was coming and had enough alcohol prepared to cover both events simultaneously. Well, I mean, she is one for a good show. 
Oh, absolutely. And everyone's certainly impressed with the entire occasion. Now, the amount of booze that the saga describes as being consumed, even at a joint wedding funeral, may significantly exaggerate the reality in the same way that the stories about wild parties tend to become a little more outlandish the more they're told. But it's Mm -hmm. true that quite a few sources suggest that the correct way to drink at a public celebration was with enthusiasm and without concern. I love this one line in uh, Orkdanga Saga. Uh, At a late point in the evening, among the men chattering to each other at a party, it says, the ale began to talk. That that sums it up nicely. I really like that one. Um, Providing a a more than... Yeah. Providing a more than sufficient amount of alcohol, I guess, uh, brought the host honor and also showed respect to the guests. Uh, Remember those nights when ale is insulted by not being offered good ale or good alcohol? And from Mm. the guest perspective, drinking to excess or at least to the point of lowering inhibitions and promoting a convivial atmosphere was a compliment to the host. Uh, John, you and I know that from hanging out with our friend Josh, who very much was of this mindset. (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> Still is, as far as I know. Uh, well, he's, he's slowing down a little bit in his older age. So, well, but yeah. I mean, who among us um, isn't? Uh, but remember, ale sort of undermines all of this, undermines it deliberately by drinking his host's ale while still criticizing their lack of hospitality. Right. I mean, so it's uh, getting drunk or at least getting relaxed is a sign that you trust the people around you, uh, like yeah. the cool parties in grad school that definitely did not exist. Definitely did not. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I, w- I will say uh, the same thing was true in my time in Russia. When we mm-hmm. were invited to people's houses, it was always a kind of a, f- a fun but somewhat formal affair. And it wasn't until you got drunk with the, the people that were hosting you to show mm-hmm. that you were comfortable, uh, to show that you trust uh, right. not just the host but the fellow guests, that that bond really started to develop, that people saw themselves that they're more vulnerable. And so some barriers had come down. Right. I had the same experience in Japan. When you were invited to someone's house, the expectation was that you would sort of match the host's level of inebriation uh, because to remain sober was to potentially embarrass the person who was losing control of themselves. Uh, And so it was expected that you would kind of be as inebriated as your host. And, you know, I'm a a fairly thick set, uh, larger uh, Caucasian male. And so uh, often had to either drink a great deal or put on a bit of a performance in order to match the inebriation of my hosts. But it's it. very much a, an important part of the sociability is to is to you know to share in that lowering of one's sort of personal standards of comportment. Mm-hmm. Sure, showing that you are at the same kind of level of inhibition dropping as your go- your host. Um, I mean. You're also showing that you're not really worried about them. You're not really afraid of what might happen if you let down your guard around them, right, uh, yeah. which might mean trust or might be a chest thumping thing in the sagas, right? Showing that you're not intimidated by anyone in the building. Could be, yeah, which becomes a kind of feedback loop. Um, if you're less drunk than others, it might be taken as a sign of mistrust or a lack of graciousness as a guest or even a lack of masculine confidence or. Mm. It might be a smart move if you hope to gain an advantage or avoid potential embarrassment. Lots of possibilities. Or, I mean, it's also potentially a sign that you're just not much of a drinker. In Mm -hmm. Los Ventingas Saga, when Bran Thorkelson is challenged to drink, he says, I haven't got so many wits that I can afford to drink any of them away. (laughs) Which is wise advice for many. But all too rarely followed. All too rarely, yeah. But uh, it can be useful. Um, Gretchen Ausmunderson, 
uh, at one point, takes on the role of host offering booze to his guests when a group of marauders bursts into a farm where Gretter's staying. After getting the men drunk, Gretter traps them and slaughters them while their defenses are down. See, that's exactly why it's important to know you can trust the situation you're in and the people you're drinking with. Of course, yeah, and it shows that those men uh, are are not in control of themselves. They're a little bit too right. wild that they let their guard down in the way that they yes, do. Yes, exactly. exactly. Um, they don't I'm, know I'm, Gretter. They've never met him. Yeah. Yeah, why are you drinking all that? Anyway, right. um, I, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Scott Ligram Kveldovson uh, telling his three-year-old son, Ale, that he can't come <laughs> to his grandfather's party because you're enough trouble when you're sober. And we've, and we've got to assume there's an exaggeration there, right? I mean, three years old. I'm, I'm not sure. This, this is Ale, right? That's fair, I guess. Uh, but to me, what's interesting there is the implication that attending a feast and drinking, they're essentially two ways of saying the same thing. Right. One inherently includes the other. So that yeah. Scott Legrim can make that intuitive leap to ale at a party equals ale having access to alcohol. Yeah. It, it's interesting that the Hava Mall is pretty consistent in warning against excessive drinking at social events. We started mm-hmm. this section with a warning about drinking too much, and there are several others scattered throughout the advice in the poem. I mean, yeah, okay, good advice and all that, but good advice and alcohol often don't mix. <laughs> For, uh, yeah, at least sure. in the sagas, and probably in reality, most people drank more than a moderate amount at parties. Mm-hmm. William Short is probably correct when he assumes that, and I'm quoting here, because of the impurities in the drink, there must have been some head-splitting hangovers the next morning. Well, nonetheless, there were a lot of reasons to encourage indulgence in alcohol. Uh, the sale mm-hmm. of land or a ship, business deals, fosterages, betrothals. All sorts of arrangements could be sealed with drinks, and the evidence points to several drinks, not just a formal sip from a horn. Right. Now, obviously, you'd want to use the good stuff for sealing an important deal. Um, Wine was used by kings and nobles who could afford it, but high-quality ale was fine, too. As we said, mead was probably falling out of favor by this time, especially in Iceland, where it was super hard to get. But in Norway, that conceivably could have been used as well. Mm Mm-hmm. There's also an advantage to offering drink to your guests if you have some business to attend to later, right? I mean, too much ale could be dangerous because you could still be held to the things you said when you'd been drinking. Mm-hmm. But to turn down a drink could be taken as an insult, which would then right. jeopardize whatever business was to be conducted. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation. No, most social situations are. Uh, but definitely the cultural precept was uh, caveat dricumather. Uh, right? Drinker beware. So in Bjorn the Hitterdal champion saga, Bjorn attends Earl Eric's court and drinks with a man named Thord. Uh, Thord encourages Bjorn to talk about his plans and about his love for the beautiful Audney Isle Candle back in Iceland. Eventually, Bjorn entrusts Thord with a ring to deliver to Audney. Uh, but the next morning, Bjorn regrets the deal, but he's bound by the agreement that he made while drunk. And that's why friends don't let friends drink and swear oaths, John. That's right. Don't be guilty of OUI. <laughs> oh, you, um, that oath-making under the influence? Precisely. Yes, yes. That's a good warning. Uh, now, we can return to Tacitus for an outsider's view of how Germanic people like to mix business and pleasure. It is at their feasts that they generally consult on the reconciliation of enemies, on the forming of marriage alliances, on the choice of chiefs. Finally, even on peace and war. 
They think that at no time is the mind more open to simplicity of purpose or more warmed to noble aspirations than when drinking. A race without either natural or acquired cunning, they disclose their hidden thoughts in the freedom of the festivity. Thus, these sentiments of all having been discovered and laid bare, the discussion is renewed on the following day, and from each occasion its own particular advantage is derived. They deliberate when they have no power to dissemble, they resolve when error is impossible. Gotcha. So it's a uh, right drunk edit sober for first century Germanic politics. I see. <laughs> it's better than the other way around, I suppose. I suppose, yeah. Uh, so as we've been suggesting, drinking was to some degree a special occasion thing in Iceland due to the scarcity mm -hmm. of resources and the difficulties in producing large quantities of barley and other grains. Nevertheless, anyone who listens to this podcast will know that there are many, many references to nightly drinking in small quantities. Sometimes that's meant as a sign of economic affluence and... Right, and respect to your guests as well, right? Yes, but it does sometimes seem as if no occasion was complete without at least a formal toast being offered. Weddings, going away parties, welcome home parties... Yuletide, and really any event that could reasonably be made to include booze were fair game. Of course. Uh, again, though, that may partly be the nostalgic impulse in the sagas, right? Imagining a time when the beer flowed like water, uh, as opposed to how it actually works when the beer flows in like beer and flows out like water. You know, there's a whole other conversation that links to celebratory drinking about uh, toilets and waste disposal. I, there is, but let's not mix the two, I mean, conversationally or literally. <laughs> uh, please. Uh, so social drinking can be anywhere from offering beer to unexpected guests to throwing a massive wedding or a Yule celebration. It's interesting mm -hmm. to consider it from the opposite end. Right? Uh, what contexts, what social events in the sagas were there where alcohol wasn't present? Are there any, or is it alcohol a necessity in public gatherings? Well, I suppose it would depend on the event, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people aren't getting half in the bag at Law Rock at the All Thing, but right, right. they're certainly drinking in the booths before or after. Sure. Uh, of course. And if you remember, uh, in Gisli Sursen's saga, right? Gisli, his brother Thorkel, and their brothers-in-law, uh, Thorgrim the Gothi and Vestin Vestinson, are all sitting at their booth and drinking when they hear that a prediction has been made yeah. that their friendship will lead to tragedy. Yeah, and then they rush into a public performance of their bond, the the turf arch ceremony, uh, without actually <laughs> talking about it first. Yeah, it's a huge embarrassing yes, scene, really, for yes. everyone involved. <laughs> um, it does start to feel like maybe they'd been drinking maybe a little too long before making the decision. <laughs> yeah, uh, the whole thing's a disaster, right? It leads to the splitting apart of their friendship. It's a badly thought out, impulsive response to a challenge. Which, if that's not a fair description of a group of belligerent young men drinking, I don't know what is. Yeah. But uh, again, that's during their leisure time. Uh, you needed yeah. your wits about you a lot of the time when at the thing or even just when farming your land. Right. Sure. Uh, I think we said last time, uh, but the, the modern misconception that medieval people were staggering drunkenly through their days. That's just uh, that's a misconception. Yeah. Uh, but but certain events, special events, right, almost demanded alcohol and sometimes a huge amount of it. Uh, which it still does, honestly, right? I mean, weddings, for example, yeah, right? still, that's very much a part of weddings. But funerals, feasts, holidays, celebrations. There's a reason kings in the medieval period had to move around their countries a fair amount, right? They'd use mm -hmm. up the resources of an area fairly quickly with all their households and guests and social obligations. So they had to move around to bring the party to where the food and drink was. 
From right. one perspective, royal processions were essentially giant pub crawls. Which is somewhat of the basis of King Lear, right? That's what King Lear is doing as yes. he's going from one house to the other, exhausting their resources. Right, with his, and drinking with his is retinue a big part of, of nights, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But let's uh, let's go ahead and aim just a little bit lower, especially since Iceland didn't have kings. We don't well, have kings touring around. Right, but the Norwegian kings show up a fair amount in the sagas, and they do seem to get around. Uh, food, and But booze. not to Iceland. No, no. <laughs> I mean, they can be found in different places in Norway. Uh, and food and yes. booze obviously is not the only factor, right? They also have to maintain authority, but it's definitely a factor. Mm-hmm. But okay, let's look yeah. at Iceland. Yeah, but, but before you do, I like that you, you point out the kings move around. It, it's always made a point of where the king is staying at a given yep. a, a given moment, yep. right? That's kind of an important feature. And right. part of that is uh, pol- maintaining political relationships. But it's, Excellent. again, the same kind of thing you see elsewhere in medieval Europe is traveling around to where the resources are ready for him to live the lifestyle that he needs right. to live at that right. time. And it's interesting that it's always um, kind, of, yeah. kind of current in the grapevine as to where the king is at any given moment, right? There isn't really a yeah. way of publishing that information. But it just – the word gets around. Everybody knows where to find the king. Whenever somebody from Iceland lands in Norway, they immediately learn where the king is right now and they can travel to that spot. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Um, But we said we were going to look at Iceland. So let's let's do do that. Um, Let's let's start with a wedding. Uh, A wedding is a good one for for this kind of thing. Uh, One of the matters to plan for at a wedding – uh, of course, both then and now is a sufficient amount of alcohol. Sure. Um, are we going to have an open bar or are we going to have people pay? Um, open no, bar. We talked about open this bar in the first is the answer, episode. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> if, well, not everyone can afford to do an open bar. Um, uh, John, remember we talked in the f- the first part of this series on drinking about the episode in Viga Gloom Saga when Thorgrim mm. Thorson gets a petty revenge on the man who's due to marry the woman he wanted by waylaying him and stealing the, the malt intended for the wedding ale. Yeah. Uh, but there are several other references to the need to brew and serve generous quantities of drink to guests at a wedding. Yeah. Now, as with everything else, uh, a festivity's alcohol availability reflected on its host. A superfluity of fluid was a sign of a well-off and generous household, while bad, mm-hmm. weak, or insufficient alcohol was a shame to be avoided at all costs. At a wedding, that need for copious and quality booze was almost inextricable from the wedding ceremony itself. Drinking the wedding ale promoted a friendly and free atmosphere for the reception. Uh, it's been argued, and I think it's fairly obviously true, that this was more or less essential. Right? A wedding marked the formation of new bonds, not just between the bride and groom, but also between their families. Of course, yes. And if the married couple were important figures in their families, the wedding might demand or at least strongly encourage new bonds of obligation and new economic or social opportunities among the members of the two groups. Right. So that's potentially profitable. But it's also likely to be a big, bit awkward and, you know, the more so, the more important the two families consider themselves. Uh, so mm-hmm. the host's provision of ale fosters that social bond to form among those present. Enright calls it a non-natural bond formed through social drinking. But in the case of a wedding, a non-natural bond, so to speak, has already been asserted between two kin groups. Alcohol, in this case, provides a lubricant, allowing the two families to get to know each other in a more relaxed way under circumstances that are designed and socially expected to create bonds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and everything can go very well uh, with that until someone in a floppy hat and a uh, <laughs> eye patch shows up and puts a, 
a sword in a tree and says, sure. ye who is most worthy <laughs> may have this sword. Uh-huh. And then, well, things can get very nasty. Sure. Um, but the uh, the need for alcohol to make a feast successful, it can lead to some odd situations like that, some odd yeah. deals. Uh, we can think of uh, Eric, the Red Saga, when Eric essentially agrees to give away his daughter-in-law, Gudrith, in marriage to Thorfinn Karlsefni in exchange for the materials, presumably including alcohol, to throw a proper Yule party. Uh, okay. So, all right. So let's assume that you and I are throwing a party in a saga. Okay, well, what's the uh, what's the occasion, John? Doesn't matter. Or just a rager for no reason to show that we've got what it takes. Okay, um, we are uh, we're hosting a ship's crew that's returned to Iceland after a successful voyage. Well, did they uh, did they bring me anything nice? Because I really would like something uh, nice. Rainbow cloak. And what else do they bring me? Because uh, some timber. I do like that. Okay. Mm. Welcome to my home, generous friends. <laughs> Our home. We're sharing the house. We're brothers. Wait, we or, have to live or, together? Or father and son. Well, I mean, <laughs> let's be brothers then. Okay. All right. Fine. Fine. So there's going to be some alcohol at this event, right? But it's probably not people falling over drunk because we didn't know we'd be hosting such a large group. So it's going to be a few days before we can ramp up the booze production to what's needed. But we can definitely offer a reasonable amount of drink. That's actually probably very realistic. Yeah. Uh, Juckins points out that the sagas report more details of excessive drinking and drunkenness at parties in Norway, while descriptions of Icelandic feasts tend to have more references to games and amusements. Mm-hmm. And we can certainly think of a number of occasions where the copious drink available in Norway leads to trouble in the sagas. Right? I mean, Ale Saga, uh, both of the instances of excessive drinking leading to vomiting and violence happen overseas. Uh, and again, in the saga of Bjorn the Hitlerdal champion, Thord Kolbinson is able to talk a drunken Bjorn into giving him a valuable gold ring and a message to take back to Bjorn's fiance. And it's pretty clear the next morning that Bjorn realizes that his overindulgence in Norwegian ale was a terrible mistake. Yeah, and it's not clear whether Bjorn, who who is an Icelander, is unused to heavy drinking, though. Mm -hmm. And there are certainly occasions uh, when drunkenness in Iceland leads to trouble. Now, speaking as somebody who's currently in Iceland, Andy, I can tell you that drunkenness in Iceland can still cause trouble. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure it Mm -hmm. can. Uh, And it's not uncommon in the sagas, either. Remember the death of Sinfjotli in the Saga of the Volsungs happens in part because his father, mm-hmm. Sigmund, is too drunk to realize that his wife, Borghild, has given Sinfjotli several horns of ale mixed with poison. Each time, Sigmund intercepts it and drinks it down, since he's not so vulnerable to the poison. Mm-hmm. And by the third time, Sigmund is so drunk from drinking his own ale and his son's poison ale that he actually encourages Sinfjotli to drink, saying, Strain it through your mustache, my boy. <laughs> and so Sinfjotli dies. And then, of course, there's Gisli Saga. Mm-hmm. Remember, part of Gisli's plan to avenge his friend Vestin's death is that both Gisli's household and his enemy Thorgrim's house are thoroughly drunk due to the winter festivals. Gisli's able to sneak in and out of the house and get away with the murder without anyone interfering because everyone is so tired from drinking. Right. Yes, tired. Well, that is one of the side effects of drinking. And apparently it's a lot of drinking. In fact, we're told that Thorgrim's guests and men are so drunk that they can't do anything useful in the immediate aftermath of his death. Yeah, I mean, you get the impression that there's a lot of drunken stumbling around in the dark in that moment, which is which is obviously dangerous when everybody's both armed and panicking. Uh 
Yeah. I wonder whether the details of Norwegian drunkenness and the lack of detail about other entertainments and games doesn't reflect a bit of that antipathy toward Norwegian life that we see so often in the sagas. Um, it may have been challenging to produce alcohol in large amounts in Iceland, but that doesn't mean they weren't able to do it when social occasions demanded. They're just less likely to talk about drunkenness at, at Icelandic parties than at Norwegian ones. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even if some of it is basically a version of your prison yard wine, sure. Oh, wow. So this this from the guy who described making booze in his bathroom in the Peace Corps. <laughs> yeah, but the, uh, but the point is, the emphasis on games and amusements at Icelandic parties is probably accurate. Sure. So back to our party. Okay, yes. So we need entertainment. What do we got? Uh, well, we can start by making sure we create a fun atmosphere and avoid fighting. And part of that is Well, that's by, important. Yeah. Well, we're going to set a friendly tone by honoring our guests properly. Ideally, we're going to bring out some horns. Okay. Right? We're going to maybe borrow some from neighbors if we need to to make sure everybody has their own. Uh, but also we have to deal with the fact that an entire ship's crew of men is going to throw off the gender balance at the party. Yeah, yeah. Assuming everyone at the party is heterosexual, which the sagas generally assume, uh, we've got more men potentially seeking female companionship uh, than there are actual women to go around. That is a real problem in Iceland throughout mm -hmm. its early history. Yeah. Um, now we mix in some alcohol with all that extra testosterone and, well, you've got a cocktail of potential trouble. What are we going to uh, do about this, John? Another cocktail joke. Just terrible. Uh, but yes, that's something that the sagas do account for. So we'll solve it the way the sagas do. Uh, there are numerous references to social drinking occurring, either in pairs or in groups, with horns or cups of drink being shared. The infamous mm -hmm. Snorri Sturluson also provides some detail about the group drinking dynamic among Vikings in Yingling Saga. Yeah, this is discussed by several scholars, actually, but uh, the point to the paired drinking seems to have been what we're talking about. Since men often outnumbered women at social gatherings, each woman would be assigned a drinking partner for the evening. Mm -hmm. That way, there's hopefully no impulse toward competition. Trying to disrupt the seating arrangements would simply be rude to the host, and you don't want that. Well, certainly not in my home. Or our home. Whatever. Okay. Now, speaking of the infamous Snorri, I know we keep going to Ale Saga for examples today, but there are a lot of drinking scenes in that saga. It's there really, really are. useful. On one of their trips together, Ail and his brother Thorolf are visiting a local earl named Arnfrith. After food has been served and eaten, the, the earl calls for attention and announces that lots will be cast for drinking partners for the evening. Ah, uh, yes. So the men will be paired with women until all the women are spoken for, and then the remaining men are expected to mix among themselves. Exactly, right. So in that case, Ail gets paired up with the earl's daughter, who turns out to have a playful way with poetry herself. So the two of them get along great for the evening. But the point is that no one is surprised by this arrangement. Mm -hmm. It's treated as a normal way to deal with gender imbalance at a party. Right, exactly. Uh, so at our party, we're going to cast lots and arrange couples for the evening. Now, mm -hmm. according to these sources, these assignments are made randomly, although it's easy to imagine ways that that could be manipulated to avoid placing a woman with an inappropriate man. Absolutely. Or to place a pair together that you're hoping will hit it off. We might want to oh, pair right, a couple yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, there's no apparent sense of matchmaking going on. Although, of course, that'd be possible to do. Right. Uh, and we're also short on evidence as to how widespread this paired drinking practice was in Iceland. Yeah. Although we have enough evidence that it was experienced by Icelanders visiting elsewhere in Scandinavia. Okay, well, let's assume that we're cosmopolitan enough to pair people up at our party Ooh. in the way that we're discussing here. Uh, who are we trying to see together? 
Um, let's see if we can get our sister's son paired up with the daughter of a chieftain's brother who's attending the party. Uh, uh, I think that's fair. Maybe we can try to get our sister, who's a widow, seated with the skipper of the ship. I mean, if the skipper of the ship is uh, appears to be wealthy mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, powerful enough, I think that's sure. a good idea. Okay. Um, I'm going to set up the lots to be drawn, and I'm probably going to waggle my eyebrows at our nephew when he's picking. Mm-hmm. Well, well, what do you know? What do you know, John? Both of those pairings just happened. What are the odds? I mean, pretty good if you're cheating, but good job. <laughs> so now that we're all set up for the evening, uh, what are we doing for fun? Well, if the beer's flowing and the conversation's sparkling, we don't need to do much more, but we like to be ready for any contingency, so we've also got some board games scattered around the place, a couple of really big drinking <laughs> horns, and maybe a cleared area for gambling or wrestling. I see. Now, this is a big party. Uh, yeah, well, do we have well, any uh, rolled up bear skins? Well, we don't do things around? small at Jonstather. Uh, wait, we, Jonstather, why not mm-hmm. Andy's home? I'm the older brother, and I called it first. Yeah, well, I'm in... Uh, okay, that's fair. But I'm going to name the entire fjord Andy's fjord. <laughs> yeah, talk to the local chieftain who's probably already named it after his goat or something. <laughs> well, a goat got buried in a landslide here, so now exactly. we always call this place Landslide Goat Place. Well done. <laughs> I, I didn't know if you'd catch that reference. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, so people are playing Neftoffel games, or maybe they're playing dice games in the right. corner. And we know they did do that at parties. It was a bit of a spectator sport. Uh, it shows up in several mm-hmm. sagas. Right In in Ragnar's saga, two of the Ragnarsons are playing Neftoffel at a gathering in their hall when they receive word of their father's death in Northumbria. Uh, or in Droplagerson's saga, uh, it shows up when Grim Droplagerson is playing against a Norwegian at a gathering when the host's young son runs by and bumps into the table and disturbs the pieces. The Norwegian gets angry and aims a kick at the kid, but the kid just farts at him and runs away. Uh, The board (laughs) is ruined, but Grimm is laughing too much to continue the game anyway. Yeah, and we know that some Toffle boards were quite ornate and expensive and undoubtedly meant to show off for company. Sure. Like the one that Boa Andreessen has to recover for Harold Fairhair. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, we have a couple of good boards set up for games. Probably not super fancy ones since neither of us is that rich, but uh, good enough to play on. Right. And then there's the drinking games. Uh, we referenced mm-hmm. these earlier when we were talking about horns. There's an actual word, knapdrke, uh, that means drinking game or drinking match. Uh, so drinking games could be competitive as seen in Marion Ravenwood's Nepalese bar. Or... If you're not invested in shoehorning in as many references to Indiana Jones as possible, you could consider the horn draining contest we talked about earlier, Thor's contest. Sure, or that. Uh, But another common pastime was a a more cooperative game. So you'd have a group that stood or sat in a circle, and horns of ale were passed around in the circle. Each person had to drink Mm -hmm. from each horn that came to them, and if anyone got caught shirking or not drinking enough— They'd have to drink a separate entire horn of beer on their own. It was a penalty drink, essentially. Okay, so now we really are just throwing a college party, John. I remember these. Well, yeah. I mean, I think this is a game that scales up and down nicely. Uh, For one thing, you can decide on the size of the horns that are being passed around. Uh, It could be a giant horn that held a gallon of booze, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, somehow I suspect that the biggest horn in the house was generally the one being used. Yeah, that's 
probably true. Uh, so we have board games. We have a game of pass the horn going on. And we have a few couples just sitting around chatting. Is there anything else we need? Well, it's not about need per se, but there are a lot of other verbal games that might be going on. Uh, mm -hmm. Games of wordplay, the creation of spontaneous poetry, proposing toasts in grandiose terms, <laughs> maybe arguments about the merits uh, or the merits of one man or one type of weapon over another. Right. Uh, flutings, of course, insult exchanges, which aren't something we want at our party, but absolutely could mm -hmm. happen at a drinking event. Yeah. You had to watch your words in a game of wordplay, though. Uh, remember, you're responsible for anything that you say. Mm -hmm. So making fun of someone's family or speech impediment or drunkenness, well, that might have consequences the next day. Right. And, and now that makes it sound like these parties were dangerous places. But generally, mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to have been the case. I mean, even in the sagas, which are which are so invested in conflict as a story hook, many feasts go very well and with everyone happy at the end of them. Right? We're often told nothing of consequence happened at that feast. Uh, drinking mostly accompanied happy or solemn occasions. Yeah, and if it's a party, it's associated with a respite from work and a chance for entertainment. Drinkers could enjoy the social freedom of drinking and of relaxing in public company. Uh, there's a word, olteti, or ale giddiness. Um, that mm -hmm. was a, it was a blanket term for the lighthearted loquaciousness of the tipsy Icelander. <laughs> uh, as far as I could tell, uh, olteti has some... Oil, oil titty? No. Uh, oil titties. Oil titties. Hello. <laughs> That's a different kind of party. Uh, now, as far as I can tell, uh, oil titty has some of the same connotations as the Irish word crack. Uh, sort of fun for the sake of fun, right? which uh, might take the form of other more spontaneous games as well. Uh, I, personally, I can distinctly remember spending a very entertaining evening at a college party alternating between games of backgammon and bowling for beer cans with a large jar of peanut butter. <laughs> that's great that's a lot of fun and I think I would lo have loved to go into some of those parties um, that you're talking about uh, well we also both participated in a beer Olympics for a friend's birthday party in grad school as I recall oh yes yes <laughs> I had mercifully put that into a locked closet in my mind palace but it was actually quite fun your mind palace that's a <laughs> that is a condemned building <laughs> if I've ever heard one uh, well Spontaneous games were certainly happening at saga parties as well. Uh, we saw the game of skin throwing. Right? You made a brief reference to it earlier, right? That skin throwing game in Bard Saga, with what amounts to a rolled up rug being tossed around in a game of keep away. Um, and there's the famous story in the myths of the gods about the gods amusing themselves at drinking parties by throwing things at Baldur, the god who was protected from harm by almost everything in the world. Almost everything, Almost. but uh, yeah, that's what that's what Loki exploits to kill Baldur, uh, a goofy drinking amusement of the gods. Mm -hmm. You can easily imagine casual games of comp competition or of chance happening here and there at a feast uh, just for the heck of it. It's fun. Right. I mean, spontaneous fun as a goal is pretty laudable. Unless a god gets killed. Wow, it's, it, it's all fun and games till Baldur gets a dart in the neck. Yeah, wise words. Um, I, but I think I'm looking around here and it looks like our party is going very well. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. All right. Uh, we'll let our guests continue their fun. Uh, hope they don't wreck the place and I think bring this episode to an end. 
Okay, yeah. Uh, this really is an impossible topic to exhaust, but we have been talking for a very, very long while now. Um, that's <laughs> two long, long-ass episodes on <laughs> drinking. Um, well, but we want to thank you guys for listening that we feel to passionate our nonsense. About, Andy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening to our nonsense as always. Right. I mean, this is the this is also, by the way, the first episode we've recorded since world events have included the war in Ukraine, uh, which is obviously a strange time to be making dumb jokes about college parties and mead horns and drunken Vikings. But this is what we do, uh, and we'll continue to do it in the hope that it provides you with something light and fun to listen to and to learn something from. Yeah. If you would like to offer us any suggestions, corrections, or opinions, please let us know. You can reach us at Facebook and Instagram, where we are Saga Thing Podcast, or on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod. You can also get to us at our WordPress site, www.sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. And you can also find us lurking on the official, unofficial Discord channel for Saga Thing, where we've got excellent conversations going on about everything from milk-based alcohol to modern Viking shows to poems about butts. It's good times. (laughs) And if none of that works, you're formally invited to our next feast with all your followers, and you can tell us whatever you want to while you're there. And hey, maybe marry our nephew while you're there. Who knows? Hmm. I think my sister would be really happy about that. (laughs) She says she wants to get him out of the house. Sure, why not? (laughs) All right. Uh, We'll be back in a week or so with the results of the third quarter court. So if you are listening to this before the 15th of March, well, you've got just a little bit of time to get your votes in. Yeah. And if you're listening to this after March 15th, how are you doing in the future? Hey, bet big on the Rams in the Super Bowl this year. No, they're in the future. Oh, is that not how this works? No. Uh, We're going to be back soon. In the meantime, party on, John. Party on, Andy. Bye for now. Oh, <laughs> 